Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 10 and reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along with me as I read. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Most of us have, at some point in our lives, come to realize that there is a distinction between listening and hearing. One is an auditory sensation that registers in the human ear. The other is an intellectual comprehension that registers in the mind, telling you what that sound means. So if I am awakened in the night by the sound of breaking glass, that is one thing. But if I recognize that it was not simply glass breaking, but rather a burglar entering my house, then I have comprehended the truth of what I was sensing. Or similarly, there have been times when all of us were speaking with another person, and during the course of the conversation, We've had the sense that the other person is not really hearing what we're saying. They're giving us verbal cues that they are listening because they say, "Uh uh-huh, and surely at the appropriate times, but they are also giving us visual clues that their mind is elsewhere. As their eyes are not focused on us, but they're looking around the room, they're checking their phones, they're turning their attention to the TV, all of which gives us the impression that the words we are speaking are going in one ear and out the other without ever hesitating in the middle. Now, this distinction between listening and hearing is at the crux of what the Apostle Paul is establishing in this portion of his letter to the Romans. 
you will remember that beginning with chapter 9, Paul has been responding to a niggling question rattling around in the minds of many as to what went wrong with the covenant that God made with the Jews. Paul established in chapter 9 that God's sovereign election was not with the entirety of the descendants of Abraham, for God chose Isaac, but rejected Ishmael. God chose Jacob, but passed over Esau. And as God would later declare to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. In other words, God's saving work is graciously dispensed to those whom God chooses. Now, we examined that issue at some length two weeks ago when we were in chapter 9. I'm not going to go over that again. If you need a refresher, I direct you to our website and invite you to listen to that sermon on the remnant once again. But I will remind you of the key verse there where Paul summarizes the argument that he's making about our salvation by saying, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, before anyone resists anew the notion of God choosing us rather than our choosing God, let us remember the one theological fact that we like to forget. When judgment fell upon Adam, it fell upon all of humanity. And that judgment was this, The day that you eat of the tree, you will die. That eternal death sentence was handed down from God's bar of judgment and directed towards Adam and all his descendants, such that from the moment of our conception, we are destined for eternal separation from our holy, holy, holy Creator unless God chooses to intervene. Now, as we know from the rest of our study, God did choose to intervene in Christ through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. But that intervention, while it is universally offered to all humanity, it is not universally accepted by all humanity, nor is it applied to all humanity contrary to their sinful desires. So again, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now in this 10th chapter, Paul is explaining the process by which God executes his plan for salvation. And we learned last week that it's not hard for us. Our sinful hearts might trick us into thinking that we need to accomplish some monumental tasks like scaling the heights of heaven to receive the news of salvation, or swimming across the sea to discover the secret to eternal life. But the Scripture tells us that the necessary word for salvation is conveniently near to us. It's on our lips, in our hearts, for it is a matter of proclaiming our faith in Jesus as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. Now again, we will not re-examine today the depth of meaning of those 
confessional statements, you can review that again by simply listening to last week's sermon. But we do need to examine the next question that arises on the heels of Paul's declaration at the end of that text from last week. For he closed that section by saying, For everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that statement always raises the issue of the man on the island. You've certainly heard that question, or perhaps it's entered into your own mind. What about the person who lives in the deepest, darkest parts of the world's jungles, isolated from all civilization, completely unaware of any sound theological thought or teaching? What does God do with such a person who has no control over their birthplace, nor has any access to any missionary outreach, has never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, let alone been given the opportunity to learn about him and believe in him. Well, the way Paul phrases this line of thought is this. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Again, this line of rhetorical questioning never must never lose track of what has already been established. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. No one is innocent before God, not even the isolated man on the island, for as Paul pointed out back in chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now here's the thing. The physical isolation of those upon whom God has chosen to shower his grace is never an obstacle for God. By God's grace and power, God is able to raise the spiritually dead to new life by the wind of His Holy Spirit, such that blind eyes are opened and deaf ears are unstopped, even among those who are as isolated as one can possibly imagine. There are missionaries today serving in some of the most spiritually dark places in the world, and by that I mean places where the gospel has not been clearly proclaimed in many generations, for the church and her message have been legislatively outlawed, and there is now just one dominant religion there, and it is not Christianity, and these missionaries are reporting individuals who have experienced visions of Christ, the intensity of which convinces them that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life and they need to find a preacher and other believers who can help them grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And I share that with you 
Not to say that such miraculous interventions are the norm, for they are not. But to simply declare to you that God is God, and if one of the sheep of his flock is living in a place where there is no visible church, where there is no preacher, where there is no other person who knows Jesus Christ, God's will is not stymied. God will reach that person and it will not be hard for him to do so. But you see, Paul's point here is to lift up the ordinary means of grace that God most frequently employs to establish faith in the hearts and minds of believers and it involves the voice of a preacher. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment... Let's go back to the beginning of the book and reconsider the creation story and how it is that all things came to be in the first place. The scriptures tell us that God simply spoke things into existence. God said, let there be light and there was light. And whatever it was that God created, we learn that God simply spoke and those things came to be. And then we see a recurring phrase in this story that simply says, and it was so. Now, this so grabbed the attention of the Apostle John that when he begins his gospel, he emphasizes the significance of this activity. For he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, there is nothing so ordinary as the spoken word. All day long, every day long, we human beings communicate primarily with the use of words. It's how we transmit the thoughts and ideas that are bouncing around inside our minds and transfer them to the minds of those with whom we are in conversation. And the clearest form of that communication is through the word Spoken. Now, I realize that we are frequently given to the written word. There is no telling how much written communication happens every day by means of text messages and emails and sticky notes and snail mail and so on. But one must admit that there is no substitute for the quality of in-person verbal communication by the intonation that is used to the volume that is employed to the facial signals that are offered, to the pauses that occur, to the desperation that may come across. There is so much that is added to the words themselves by means of the human voice. And when it comes to the good news of Christ, God has chosen to communicate those glad tidings around the globe through the voices of individuals speaking words of life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. One of the great chapters in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 37, where the prophet is, in the Spirit of the Lord, set down in a valley filled with a multitude of bones, and they are characterized as being very dry. And God asks the prophet, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, you do not need to be a seminary-trained forensic scientist to answer that question. 
an uneducated eight-year-old could look at all those skeletal remains and realize that there is no possible way for even the most gifted physician to bring them back to life. They are not only dead, they are really, really dead, simply waiting for someone to come along with a shovel. But Ezekiel, cognizant of who he is speaking with, realizes that with God all things are possible. And so he wisely responds as only a true disciple can respond. Oh, Lord, you know. In other words, whether a person can be resurrected back to life cannot be discerned by any human means of perception. Ezekiel understood that God called all things into being out of nothing and with nothing more than the utterance of a word. And so he was not going to utter a word that would seemingly put any limitations upon God because God has no limitations. And in response, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, how will they hear without ears? How will they comprehend without a mind? It doesn't matter. What matters is, what is the intention of the sovereign Lord of creation? What did Paul say in chapter 4 of our study? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, when it is the intention of God for dry bones to live again, they will live again. When it's the intention of God for a persecutor of the church like Saul of Tarsus to become God's apostle to the Gentiles, he will become the apostle to the Gentiles. When it's the intention of God for the deacon Philip to go down to the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza in order to meet an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from the prophet Isaiah to hear the gospel, be converted, and then carry those glad tidings to the continent of Africa, it will be so. And when it is the intention of God for the Gentiles to be invited into the family of God, beginning with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and all of his household through the preaching of Peter, then it also will be so. And when it is the intention of God for the word of life the gospel of Jesus Christ to be spread across the globe through the preaching of the word of Christ by human voice, then that's how it will be. Now, God could have dramatically proclaimed the gospel through his booming voice coming through the clouds, but that's not how God chose to do it. God could have sent angels to make personal guest appearances to every person on their 15th birthday, but that's not how God chose to do it. God could have used pulsating stars 
to send messages via Morris code every night all across the globe with the news of Christ's atoning work, but that's not how God chose to do it. God chose to use the ordinary voices of ordinary people, ordinary preachers, who have been ordinarily commissioned by the church to offer the extraordinary gospel on a regular basis to any and all who are willing to hear. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now here's where the distinction between listening and hearing arises because as we think about the Jews, they had the most gifted preacher that ever was in the person of Christ himself, standing before them with the words of life, providing miraculous signs so they would understand that his words were ordained of God, preaching and teaching with an uncommon authority they had never known before, weeping over them because of their hardness of heart, and still they would not believe. In fact, they determined to silence his voice by nailing him to a cross. So where was the failure? Paul said in verse 6 of the last chapter, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see, the failure to hear is always on us because of our sin. Our sin produces selective hearing in us such that we tune out the voice of our Creator. By our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth even when the way, the truth, and the life is standing before us. And unless God chooses to break through that barrier to understanding, we will eventually suffer God's judgment and it will be perfectly just. This is why the Jews failed to recognize their Messiah. Because God's judgment fell upon them and only a remnant was redeemed. So when God commissions Isaiah, he has him declare to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. And 800 years later, when Jesus stood before them preaching the glad things concerning the kingdom of God, they did not perceive yet because their sin blinded them. And this is why Jesus spoke in parables to them, which the disciples found to be curious. But Jesus answered their question about that by saying, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of of heaven, but to them it's not been given. And then he said, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. He says, For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then he says to the disciples, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. Now how is it that two people can sit beside 
one another in a worship service, hear the gospel clearly presented, and one of them glories in it, for it's like a river of life bubbling up within them, and the other person fails to understand what the big deal is. One person cannot stop talking about how the glad tidings of Christ filled their soul to overflowing and the other person criticizes the preacher for being too emotional or being judgmental or saying the most hateful things. And you wonder whether these two people were actually in the same meeting. But you see, to one it has been given to understand and to the other it has not been given to understand. And their sinful disposition keeps them from ever perceiving. And this is why God employs this methodology of reaching the hearts and minds of all those whom he has elected unto salvation. The preaching of Christ to the world resonates with all those who have been given to the Son by the Father and it attracts them to the worship of God in spirit and in truth. As Paul says here, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But the preaching of Christ also alienates others. In essence, the preaching of Christ separates the sheep from the goats. Paul recognized this when he wrote to the Corinthians. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are many who have stopped preaching Christ as they were first commissioned to do, because they found the preaching of Christ to be divisive. When they realized that their congregation was not all obeying the gospel, as Isaiah notes, they decided that it was better to shift gears and offer a message that was pleasing to the sinful ear. And to accomplish this, they decided to focus on issues that they perceived to be of popular interest among Their hearers, or they subtly transformed Christ into a mere shadow of his former self to build a larger crowd. And there is no denying that you can build an extremely large crowd when you stop preaching Christ. Paul recognized that preaching Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Gentiles but he did not change his message for the sake of gaining a larger audience. Because he understood that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Which is to say that the gospel message is all about Jesus. It is announcing to the world that God has done in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. It is announcing to the world that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It is announcing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is expounding upon Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension, exalting the name of Christ in such a way that those who have ears to hear will hear and will respond in faith. 
And as Paul pressed forward with this gospel mission, he realized that God's plan for Israel and the rest of the world was unfolding before his eyes. For as God was making himself known to the Gentiles, to those who were not even seeking after him, God was making the Jews jealous. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah 65, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And you see, this is the disposition of God toward sinners. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But do we come? Not if we're in love with our sin. Not if we refuse to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. Not if our pride demands that we stay in control. But if that invitation from Christ appeals to us, if that invitation resonates in any way with our soul and we find that enticing, then please understand that is evidence to us that God's Spirit has been at work in us, changing the disposition of our heart revealing to us our need for Christ as Savior, birthing a genuine faith in us that is capable of receiving all the benefits of Christ. And if that picture of Christ with arms extended in welcome, if that's not offensive to you and you have never surrendered yourself to Him in faith, then I invite you to do so even now as we come together in a moment of prayer. Would you pray with me?